So Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, and through to verse 20. So do you remember what the word revelation means? The revealing? What's the Greek word? Apocalypse. Yeah, apocalypse. So revelation is the apocalypse. It means to unveil that which is not understood. So revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in all his original glory as the one who was and is and is to come, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb that had been slain. So John was the disciple who was closest to Jesus, who was described multiple times as the disciple that Jesus loved. Yet when John sees Jesus in his glorified state, he falls down as though he's dead, like falls down as dead when he sees the glorified Jesus. So John the Apostle, who leant on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper and, you know, really close to Jesus, when he sees Jesus as he's revealed in Revelation, as he is in heaven right now, he goes, <gasps> This is the revelation of Jesus as he is now, as he's living in heaven. And there's a verse I'm going to read with you before we get started. It's 2 Corinthians 5.16. It says, Consequently, from now on, we estimate and regard no one from a purely human point of view in terms of natural standards of value. No, even though we once did estimate Christ from a human viewpoint and as a man, yet now we have such knowledge of him that we know him no longer in terms of the flesh. So we no longer think of him as a man living on earth. So, how is Jesus different now that he lives in heaven than he was on earth? What's the difference? How come John has such a different reaction to Jesus? Well, when Jesus stepped out of heaven and came down to earth as a man, he veiled or hid his glory. He laid aside the independent use of his divine nature, like his power, he, he laid it aside, and he took upon himself a true human nature. And he voluntarily limited himself to only live by that human nature. So how did he do his miracles? Well, he did his miracles by the same way we do our good works for God, and that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Like We need the Holy Spirit to come upon us to empower us for service, to empower us to live for him, to obey him. So there's one thing for the Holy Spirit to be in us, but then we also need the empowering. I'm not talking about just for the gifts, but I'm talking about to be bold for witnessing. Like it says in the scriptures in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit means again and again and again be filled with the Spirit because we're sinners and we're leaky vessels, as some people say. And so we need to continue to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit and allow Him to control us. That's the battle that we face. And that's why Jesus could say, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also. So it's the same Holy Spirit who dwelt in Jesus as who dwells in us. So we'll do greater works, not qualitatively. We'll never do better works than Jesus. Jesus was perfect. But we can do more of them because we're more in number. So we can feed more poor people. We can encourage more people because there's more of us the church as a whole we can do greater as in more works through the same power of the spirit now 
Jesus in heaven right now is as John, Peter, and James saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, how did Jesus look then? Matthew 17, 1 to 2, and 5 to 8. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. That means transformed or metamorphosized. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So like a caterpillar is metamorphosized into a butterfly, is a complete change. It's a revelation of who he is in his deity, in his glory. And then verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, we're going to see a very similar situation in Revelation. We're going to go through the revelation of Jesus. Jesus, We're going to see Jesus standing before John. John's going to turn around and see him. And he's going to say the same thing. Do not be afraid. So, while Jesus was on earth, his glory was hidden or veiled, but no more. He is no longer laying aside the independent use of his divine nature. He now does things by his own power, not just relying on the Holy Spirit. He's no longer veiling his power and his glory. So, like John, when we see Jesus, we will not see him or regard him as just a man from a human point of view. But rather, we will behold God the Son in all his majestic glory that is his, because he is the eternal God, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together, and the sustainer of all life. That's what Revelation is all about. It's about the revelation of who Jesus is right now. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for this awe-inspiring and mind-blowing revelation of who you are. And of course, we're just reading words, but I pray that your spirit will just really work in our hearts to capture a glimpse of the reality of the risen Lord, Lord, the glorified Saviour, and to realize that you are magnificent, you are majestic, you are a true king. You are God in all your glory. And we just pray that you'll give us a revelation of who you are as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start at verse 9 and get through to verse 20, hopefully. So I'm just going to start reading from Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, and read through to verse 20. And then we'll we'll go through the verses. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. 
His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Alright, so verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John starts this by saying, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. Remember the Christians were being slaughtered, persecuted and tortured. Families were ripped apart. Children were being killed, all that kind of stuff. So this is why he identifies himself as a brother and companion in this trial, this difficulty. And now for us today, if we're going to be effective in reaching out to this lost world, there's a lot of suffering, we need to reach out as someone who understands suffering. And we need to be able to be willing to join in their suffering. So we need to be involved as Christians in each other's lives in a healthy way, especially as it relates to discipleship, serving Christ, and suffering for his name's sake. So as one person suffers, then the other people kind of gather around and support them. You know, we, as a body, we can get through it. And it's much easier when you go through persecution if you got friends to pray with you and encourage you with verses and, and things like that and you know just give you a hug if you need it. So I John was on the island that is called Patmos. Now it's a rocky, desolate island about ten miles long and six miles wide. It's like an Alcatraz remember that movie? Escape I think it was called Escape from Alcatraz. So it was like the Roman Empire's version of Alcatraz. It was used as a prison island and functioned as a jail without bars, basically. So the island was rich in marble and most of the prisoners were forced labourers in marble quarries. So a couple of historical facts about John from the early church fathers. The ancient Christian historian Eusebius says John was imprisoned at Patmos under the reign of the Roman Empire Domitian. Also, according to Victorinus, John, though aged, was forced to labour in the mines located at Patmos. Early sources also indicated that at about 96 AD, at Domitian's death, that was the emperor at the time, John was allowed to return to Ephesus when the emperor Nerva was in power. So basically, John was there in prison for his faith, and he was like 17 or so when Jesus called him, and now he's it's 95 AD. So he's getting close to 100, if you do the math. Um, and he's this really old guy, and he's doing forced labor in a quarry, smashing rocks. So, not a nice existence. Just think about 
the circumstances that John's in. And then it says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So for the word of God, John was not only a pastor, but also a theologian. So the word caused him to be banished to Patmos, but the word also made him who he was. John is a giant of the faith because he was a man of the word. If you want to be men and women of God, if you want to be used by God, if we want to increase our faith, then we need to be people of the word, studying it, obeying it, and being ready to suffer for it. So Romans says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Now, a few things about suffering for Christ. I just want to make three quick points here about suffering for Christ. The first one, you're not going to like this, it's to be expected. It's a promise. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Jesus warned the apostles in John 15, 20, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. If the world hates me, they will hate you. So don't take it personally. <laughs> don't get upset. How are they saying that? No, they're not saying it about you. They're saying it about Jesus who lives inside of you. Okay, They don't have a problem with you. They have a problem with God. And it just happens that God lives in you and therefore they don't like you either. The second thing about suffering is that it brings great eternal reward. It's Matthew 5, 11 to 12. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So, this is called delayed gratification. How many of us have gone to university? Or maybe trained for a job or something like that. I remember going to university being dirt poor and having to skimp and you know miss out on things. But I did it because I recognized at the end there'll be a reward. Okay? So, there's lots of verses in the scriptures that talk about our reward that is coming is so much better than the small sacrifice that we have to make now, the small amount of suffering that we go through. When we get there, we go, oh, that suffering was nothing compared to this massive reward, this glory that we receive. Keep that in mind. And three, there is a purpose for suffering. It's the growth of our faith, which brings us much joy, both in this world and in the next. So it's First Peter 1, 6-7. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Now that little while can seem like a long while, but in the light of eternity, it's only a little while. So for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, we are only given one chance to grow in our faith, and that is one life. What's that? CT stud poem. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Understand that God doesn't allow us to suffer because he's sadistic and a psychopath. No. He knows what is best for us and will always be with us through the storms. And we can see how we will be truly blessed if we embrace suffering for Christ as we read the next verses. Because it's in the storms and trials of life that we have the greatest revelation of who God is 
and experience much greater intimacy with him. We talked about this in the first week in the introduction. Without exception, God only reveals more of who he is to people as they suffer, as they're going through hard times. All right, verse 10 of Revelation chapter 1. says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So in verse 10 it says, I was in the Spirit. So it's not just walking in the Spirit, but he received a unique, special revelation from God. And we might call this an out-of-body experience. And people in the New Age and the cults are always seeking an out-of-body experience. So people get abducted by UFOs and have an out-of-body experience. But this is a godly out-of-body experience. This is God doing this, taking John out of the time dimension, basically, and taking him to eternity. Paul also had an out-of-body experience where he saw heaven as well. And Paul said, I cannot describe it. It'd be a crime to even try and describe it. Now, there's four references, just for your interest, to John being in the spirit, like in this out-of-body state in the book of Revelation. So first at Patmos, which is here, Revelation 1 verse 10. Then in heaven, Revelation 4 verse 2. Then in the wilderness, Revelation 17 verse 3. And finally on the mountain of God, Revelation 21 verse 10. So on the Lord's day, what is the Lord's day? That's an interesting question. Is it the day of the Lord? Is it talking about tribulation? In this case, it's not. I think it comes from, I did a bit of reading, and the pagans of the Roman Empire, the Gentiles, they call the first day of each month Emperor's Day in honor of the emperor. So it follows that Christians who didn't worship the emperor, they worshiped Jesus, who was their God, our God. They called the first day of the week the Lord's Day. So Christians, we worship every week. The Roman Empire, they worship once a month, their emperor. So the Christians said, well, it's not Emperor's Day, it's the Lord's Day. It's Jesus' Day, because he rose again on the first day of the week. So why did they meet on the first day of the week? How do we know they met on the first day of the week, or Sunday? Well, it's Resurrection Day. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Sunday is also the eighth day, with eight being the number of new beginnings. So the resurrection is like a new life. It's a new beginning. And here is some scriptural evidence. I'm not making it up. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. I promise I won't go that long today. It seems clear that the early church met at least once a week, all right, usually on the first day of the week or Sunday, to share communion together, breaking bread, like the bread and the wine, and to hear preaching and teaching. So this would have been their regular meeting day. And then there's also 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So giving your tithes and your offerings. So they did that once a week on a Sunday, on the first day of the week. So it indicates that the early church met on the first day of the week. Also, 
a second century writer, church father, Justin Martyr, he wrote in his first apology, which is a letter that he wrote to the emperor explaining what Christianity is all about and, and what Christians did, what they believed. He wrote of and gave evidence for the widespread practice of Sunday worship. So Christians worshipped on Sunday. So the early church fathers also corroborate that what the Bible says about the church worshipping on Sunday. This is a bit off track, but in Exodus 31 and Ezekiel somewhere, it goes through the Sabbath and explains very clearly it was for the people of Israel, not for the church. So on the first day of the week, it was the day that the early church got together and shared communion, taught the word, and gave money for support of the church. So basically, that's what we do. Most churches take an offering, they teach the word, and we share communion on a fairly regular basis. Now, what did this look like as far as the Roman culture goes? Did they have Sundays off? No, they didn't have Sundays off. So if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire before the year 321, you would have to meet before work or after work. Okay? And a quote here. Start a quote. No expectation that on the Lord's day one is to rest from one's labours. So it was just a normal day, working day of the week in the Roman Empire. Slaves had to work on that day. So if you were a Christian, again, you wouldn't have the day off. Sunday was not a rest day. So when did Sunday become a generally accepted day of rest? Because I found this quite interesting. So if it wasn't a day of rest, when did it become a day of rest? Well, the Roman Emperor Constantine, after he embraced Christianity, you know, he saw the cross in the sky and all that kind of thing. I won't go through it now. But he embraced Christianity for political or military reasons. Some say he became a disciple or convert, but I don't know. He wrote this edict in March 321 AD, and quote, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people abiding in cities rest, and let all the workshops be closed. End of quote. So that was his edict. So March 321 AD, Sunday became a day of rest. And so what's happening is that Constantine simply recognized that Sunday, the first day of the week, was the day that Christians met to worship, and so he said, okay, well, let's make that a day off so the Christians can have their day off to worship. It just makes it easier for everybody, and especially since he's trying to please them, since because of them he won the battle. So that's where the idea of Sunday as a rest day came from. But Sunday as a day of worship was established right from the very start. Verse 10. I heard behind me a loud voice. Now the loud voice... John heard this loud voice, and it sounded like a trumpet. Now, a trumpet is very clear and very loud. And this voice belongs to the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, who is the beginning and end of all things. And Jesus introduced himself in verse 8. We went through these titles but then. Um, it proves that he is God. So I won't go through those again now. But why repeat it here? Why keep affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, someone said an idea is that when people are suffering, they need to know that God is in control, that he is sovereign. From a human perspective, if you were in an airliner with 500 people and the airliner was going straight down towards the earth, getting faster and faster and it's starting to shudder and shake, 
and the pilot says, I'm very sorry, but there's nothing we can do. <laughs> From a purely human perspective, without any Christian belief, you'd be starting to panic because you have no hope. This is, this is terrible. But if you're in a different plane, this time you've actually paid for a stunt pilot to take you in his plane. And the stunt pilot is doing all these weird things. You know, you're going upside down with your, your head just above the trees and then you're going up and you're coming straight down. You're doing all these kind of acrobatic stuff. You'll be laughing and carrying on and, you know, and really enjoying it. So you're still, you know, nose diving to the earth, but you know that that pilot is going to pull out of that and you're going to be... So knowing that someone is in control that is looking after you takes the fear out of life. You don't have to be afraid if someone's looking after you. God is the pilot and the plane of life won't crash and God has promised that he will get us to heaven. So we will land there, no matter how bumpy the ride and how many uncomfortable maneuvers he puts us through. Then he says in verse 11, what you see right in a book, again, he's commanded to write what he saw. He went through that in the first week. And he's going to be commanded to write 11 more times in the book of Revelation. And then he says, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So there's more than seven churches in Asia, but the Holy Spirit selected these seven churches. Now seven is the number of completeness. So these seven churches represent the complete church. So although it mentions just these seven churches, what's written in the book of Revelation applies to all the individual churches throughout the entire church age. So not only to these seven churches. And therefore, the message of the book of Revelation is for us as well. And the messages in the individual churches is also for us, both personally and as groups of believers. Now we come to Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, where John turns to see Jesus. So it's verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. So, imagine what you'd be thinking as you're turning to see who this person is speaking behind you. John knew Jesus' voice. Maybe he'd forgotten what it sounded like because it's been a long time, what, 60 years or so. But this voice was completely different. This is a voice like a trumpet. This is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of God. So John is seeing Jesus again, but has a different reaction. Now, at first, he doesn't see Jesus. He sees seven golden lampstands. And these were not candlesticks, they're not menorahs, but they're free-standing oil lamp stands. So the lamps were set on the lampstands. And verse 20 explains to us that the lampstands are a picture of the church. And there were seven separate lampstands. And that image again reminds us of the golden lampstand or menorah in the temple and the tabernacle. But this is different. The old covenant lampstand was one lampstand with seven lamps on it. Here in the new covenant we see seven lampstands. Why is that? Well, my guess is that there was one Jewish place of worship, the temple, and it all went out from there, but 
now in the church age we have churches everywhere and we're all independent. We don't have one central place of worship. Now, the lampstands are a good picture of the church. We don't produce the light. We simply display the light. We put it up there for people to see. We reflect God's goodness. So in that sense, we are the light of the world. And then it says, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Jesus was there in the midst of these lampstands, in the middle of them, as the Son of Man. So first off, who is the Son of Man? What's his title mean? Well, you need to go back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Who's coming with the clouds of heaven? It's Jesus, yeah? He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. The Ancient of Days being the Father. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So this is Jesus, the Messiah, and he is the one who is going to be ruling and reigning on the earth. So, the Son of Man doesn't sound like an important title, but the Old Testament tells us that it represents the Messiah. Now, I just want to pause for a sec as an application. What would have happened if John had chosen not to turn and see? Can you imagine what he would have missed out on? And what we would have missed out on? There's many examples of people responding to God's calling on their lives, to God calling them, like be it through angels or dreams or God himself, and they're all blessed by their choice to turn and see, to receive and respond to God's message. So, examples, the shepherds, oh, those stupid angels are keeping me awake. I don't listen to them. <laughs> You're crazy not to listen, eh? Then there's Mary and Moses and Joseph and all these people who had revelations from God. But I want to contrast them with one group of people who did not turn and see, so to speak. And they missed out on something really important. They missed out on the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man. So here's a a summary of the story. You can probably guess what it is. When the wise men arrived in Jerusalem and asked, where is the Messiah to be born? The Bible scholars, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, we know that. Bethlehem. See, they knew Bible prophecy really well. They knew the Bible really well. They knew the verses in Micah that foretold the place of his birth. The scriptures in Daniel that foretold the time of his birth. The prophecy in Isaiah that prophesied he'll be born of a virgin and go to Egypt. They were Bible students. They were really keyed in with the Bible. They knew their Bible. But they knew the Word of God but they never made the five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They knew that the king was coming. They knew when he was coming. They knew where he was coming. The wise men are here. Where is the Messiah? We know he's here. Oh, he's in Bethlehem. He's just down the road. They never bothered to go and see him himself. So we can be the same. We can know things. We can know the Bible academically. We can search out details and meanings of words and debate doctrines and all the while missing the revelation of Jesus personally. So be careful that your study of the Bible is not just an academic one, but you're seeking relationship with God.
Now, John could have said when he heard the voice, I know the Bible. After all, I wrote a good part of it. No, he was humble. He turned to see. Now, who's another example of someone who always turned to see? It's Jesus. He lived his whole life turning to see what the Father said. John 5.19 What I see the Father do, that I do. I'll say that again. What I see the Father do, that I do. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. So Jesus lived his whole life taking the time to turn and see what God the Father was saying to him. So for us, will we take the time to be in the Word, to hear God's revelation, and then will we do it? So then it says, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So the clothing of Jesus indicates that he is a person of great dignity and authority. Now back in those days, the person with authority would wear the long garment. Well, it's very difficult to wear those working the fields, and so they'd wear a shorter type garment. It also reminds us of the high priest in the Old Testament. So Jesus is our high priest, and we're going to see more similarities between Jesus and the high priest of the Old Testament. So one of them is the long garment, and the other one is the golden band around the chest. So the priest used to have this thing around um, his chest, the ephod. And that's in Exodus 29 verse 5. Also interesting is that one of the duties of the Old Testament priests was to tend the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. Every day they had to fill the oil, clean the soot, trim the wicks. You know, the menorah, they had to make sure that was burning all the time. They had to inspect and care for the lamps so that it would not stop burning. They'd be continually burning before the Lord. So here is Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands doing his function or performing his function as a high priest in maintaining the lamps and keeping them burning. So each individual congregation is being looked after and maintained by Jesus. Isn't that sweet? Powerful. I've never seen that before, but it's, it's great. Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands. There's a lampstands representing the church, as Jesus said in verse 20. And if you want to know more about Jesus the high priest, you can read the book of Hebrews, uh, chapters 2 through 7. And he keeps talking about Jesus the high priest and his ministry and how he helps us. Right now, verse 14 in Revelation chapter 1. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So, first off, the head and the hair were like wool. So the white hair speaks of old age, and in that culture, the Jewish culture, it's connected with the idea of wisdom and timelessness, like being eternal. And the phrase white as snow emphasizes the idea of purity, and you can reference Isaiah one eighteen, where it contrasts that to our sins, which are scarlet. And the white hair and head also correspond with the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and it's another reference to his deity. Now, his eyes like a flame of fire. What does the fire represent in the scriptures? 
It's judgment. And a couple of references there, I won't look them up for the sake of time, but Matthew 5.22 and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. So that's Matthew 5.22 and 2 Peter 3, verse 7, where fire is used in the context of judgment. So Jesus' eyes displayed the fire of searching, penetrating judgment. And he will judge us when we get there. We'll go through the beam of seat judgment. On the wood, hay and the stubble, we'll all burn up. So who just look at all our life and all that stuff that's not done for him will burn up. But in saying that, of course, we are covered by his blood. And so we're saved. And we'll be rewarded for the things that he's done through us when we've submitted to him. So it's not all bad. It's not all bad. His feet were like fine brass. So since fire is connected with judgment, these feet like fine brass, it's like they've been refined in a furnace. So these feet have been refined in a furnace. It talks about someone who has been through the fires of judgment and has come forth purified. So Jesus has been through trials. He's been through the greatest trial, which is the cross. Also, brass is a metal connected with judgment and sacrifice. The altar was made of brass, and it was called the brazen altar. Now, his voice as the sound of many waters. This means Jesus' voice had the power and majesty of like a mighty waterfall. So if you imagine a big waterfall, you can imagine you know, the power of that and how you can't hear anything else when that's going. That's what it would sound like. He had in his right hand seven stars. The seven stars speak of the leaders or representatives of the seven churches mentioned in verse 11 and verse 20. And the stars are securely in the right hand of Jesus. So I won't go into it now. Why? That'll be next week when we talk about the church. As you start into chapter 2. But I believe that the stars represent the pastor. And it's a great blessing that the pastors are in God's hand. He's looking after us. And since seven is the number of completion, we can say he's got the whole church in his hand. So as I said, we'll come back to that next week. Now, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and the Greek word is the rom fire. It's a big, heavy sword used to kill and destroy. Now, did it really come out of his mouth? When we see Jesus, do we have to watch out? We didn't get too close, as he might get cut up by the sword. When he tries to eat, does he have to put it around the sword? You know, No, of course not. All right, what is the sword in Scripture? The Word of God. Yeah, Ephesians 6.17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word is like a weapon, and it's our weapon also. We use it to fight off the fiery darts of the evil one. It represents also our faith. That's where it comes from. How did Jesus fight off the temptations that Satan threw at him? The Word of God. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So the glory of Jesus as God is so great, so shining, that it's hard even to look upon him. Jesus has the same glory. We went through this at the very start. Jesus had the same glory as in his transfiguration when his face shone like the sun. And that was back in Matthew chapter 17. So overall, in this picture of who Jesus is, this description of Jesus in his unveiled form, his glorified form. Everything speaks of strength, majesty, authority, and righteousness, purity. 
So this Jesus that John saw is a real Jesus, the Jesus that lives and reigns in heaven today. He's no longer a babe in a manger. He's not hanging on the cross anymore, as some people still put him. He is the Son of God in all his splendor and glory. All right, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So John was overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. And you go back to Isaiah. What did Isaiah do? You know, he's going, first five chapters or whatever, six chapters, he's going, woe to you, Israelites. Woe to you, Egyptians. Woe to you, Babylonians. You know, and he's giving all these judgments, and then he has this vision of Jesus in the temple, and he goes, woe is me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, he's saying, oh, no. And so when we see Jesus, we're going to get a much better understanding of his purity and his perfection in our sinful state, in our sinful minds, our finite minds. We just can't grasp how awesome Jesus is. So even though John spent time with Jesus on earth, it still didn't prepare him to see Jesus in his heavenly glory. So we got time now to prepare to see him. We're still going to get a shock when we see him, but we start to realize that this is what we're going to see. Now, verse 17, he laid his right hand on me. So Jesus, despite being perfect and glorious and holy and righteous and everything, he comes and touches John. He puts his hand on him. He laid his right hand on me. Then Jesus gave John a command, do not be afraid. So why didn't John need to be afraid? Well, he's in the presence of Jesus, and this is comforting. Jesus is not only judgment, but he's also love. God is also love. So we have a God who loves us. Yes, God's power and strength and majesty and purity is beyond what we comprehend, yet Jesus is still gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So despite Jesus' massive glory and you know kingliness, he's still so gentle and lowly. He's saying, don't be afraid. We can be confident. We can be assured we can be at peace in his presence. But the Bible says that no one can see God and live. So if we're in our sinful state, then we would be killed. We would not survive. He's just too good. His goodness is too great. Evil cannot exist in his presence. And so when we see him, what are we going to hear? It is I. Do not be afraid. Now verse 18. Jesus clearly identifies himself to John with three titles. Jesus is the first and the last. That's the God of all eternity, past and eternity, future. And we went through that previously. Jesus is the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. That's the next phrase there. So the one who lives and was dead and is alive forevermore. So this is speaking of his resurrection and the fact that he never will die again. He only had to die once. His victory over sin and death is a permanent victory 
He doesn't need to be sacrificed again. He is alive forevermore. Now, the last one here is is really interesting. Jesus is the one who has the keys of Hades and of death. Now, isn't Satan the Lord of hell? You know, isn't he in control of that? Isn't he in control of the earth? Doesn't he have authority over us? <laughs> Not anymore, but he used to. Okay, he used to. So this phrase comes after the resurrection phrase, I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. So before the resurrection, Satan did hold the keys. He could lock people up. We were under condemnation, remember? When did Satan get the keys? It's like the title deed for the earth. When Adam sinned. So God gave dominion to Adam. Gave him the title deed to the earth. And then when Adam sinned, Adam gave it over to Satan. He became a slave to sin. He became a slave to Satan. But because of Jesus' victory, we are now free. Jesus has got the keys of Hades and death. It means that Satan cannot hold us in anymore. So the keys of hell and death are not to lock people up, but to set people free. Now, because Jesus has the keys of Hades and death, when a believer dies, they don't have to stay in Abraham's bosom or paradise. See, in the Old Testament, when a person who died believing in the Savior to come, they would go to paradise or Abraham's bosom because the price had not been paid yet. God had promised to pay the price. So before the resurrection, Jesus didn't have the keys of Hades and death. Satan did. We're under condemnation. And Luke 16, where Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And there's a great gulf in between the two. So there's the believers and there's the unbelievers. There's people who believed in God and took up the offer of salvation. They understood that God was going to send a saviour who would die in their place so that they wouldn't be punished for their own sins. And then there's the people who refused that offer of forgiveness. Now, all through the Old Testament, they had to put their hand on a lamb and they had to confess their sins onto the lamb and the, the sin was transferred onto the lamb. And so people knew about this idea of the sin being taken away from them and put on the Savior. But they rejected it. A lot of them did. And so they go to the other side of Abraham's bosom, what we call Hades, all right? And they're still there. So Hades is getting fuller and fuller, but Abraham's bosom, or paradise, is empty. It says in Ephesians that Jesus took captivity captive. So Jesus took all the captives, the believers, up to heaven because he now had paid the price. He had victory over Satan. He's got the title deed. And in chapter 4 and 5, we'll see Jesus take the title deed and start to open it. Now, there's a parable I'd like to read. And just explaining this thing about the earth being in Satan's name, the title day of the earth being in Satan's name, and then Jesus having to redeem it. So it's Matthew thirteen forty four. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the field is the world, the earth. The people are the treasure. Jesus is the man who gives up everything, including his own life, 
to buy the field so that he can have access to the treasure. So before he bought the field, he didn't have access to the treasure. But after he bought the field, which represents the earth or the world, he then had access to the treasure, the people. And he could then take those who believe to heaven. Now for those who don't believe in Jesus for salvation, it's not Satan stopping them from going there. It's their own choice. Satan can't do anything now. He's powerless. He's been disarmed. But people still make their own choice to not go to heaven, to refuse the offer of salvation. Satan has no power over us anymore. So the choice between heaven and hell is completely up to the individual. And verse 19, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So we went through this before, but just quickly we'll go through it. It's the outline of the book. So write the things. This is the second command to write, and it gives us a structure of the book of Revelation. It's the things which you have seen. The things which you have seen is Revelation chapter 1, and it's the vision of Jesus. And then you have the things which are, and this is the church age, the present era that John was in. We are in the church era, church age. And then there's the things which will take place after this. So this is after the rapture, after the church age is finished. The rapture is the end of the church age. So at the start of chapter 4, we have these words. After this, the words are metatelta. So in verse 19, the things which will take place after this is metatelta. In chapter 4, verse 1, we have metatelta, after these things. And it says it twice in the first verse. It's got metatelta, and then it describes a rapture, when a trumpet saying, come up here, or a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here, and then it says, after these things, metatelta. Again, all in one verse. So that's like the rapture happening in chapter 4, verse 1. So after that, the third section of Revelation is the tribulation, seven-year tribulation, the second coming, the thousand-year millennial reign, the new heavens and new earth, and other things. So, in conclusion, this is a spectacular vision, and many people wish they could have a vision like John did. But we can know the very same Jesus John saw. We can know his purity, his eternal wisdom, his searching judgment, his victory, his authority, and his majesty. God wants to reveal these things to us, and that's why he's written the book of Revelation. We don't have to see the vision because it's been recorded for us. So as we study the scriptures, the scriptures reveal who God is. And so we get a better and better understanding of who God is. Now, coming right back to the start, when we think of John's spectacular vision, we should remember where John was. He was imprisoned on Patmos. So Jesus is often known most intimately in the midst of suffering and trials. So both John and Stephen, Stephen's account is in Acts 7, 54-60, we'll read it in a minute. Both of those people, John and Stephen, saw Jesus most clearly and gloriously in the context of suffering for the cause of Jesus. So I want to finish today by just reading Stephen's testimony. Pretty inspiring. So it's Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 56. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God 
and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. So here we have Jesus seated at the throne. What, why is he standing? It says that Jesus finished his work on the cross and went to heaven. He sat down. The work is finished. It's sitting down, it represents the finished work of the cross. But now he's standing. What's he doing standing? Getting ready to... Who's going to go up and see him very soon? Yeah. He's welcoming Stephen. Yeah. Because Stephen, a little bit later, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. So, just like John got a vision of heaven, so did Stephen, but... Their circumstances were pretty painful. Stephen was being stoned. He was being boom, 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 you know. And he sees this beautiful vision. John was the island Patmos, a 95-year-old man, you know, being forced to do heavy labor, cracking rocks with a sledgehammer. It's like pretty miserable existence. But in the middle of all that, they experience something glorious. And it's the same with us too. If we, in the middle of our hard times, our trials, if we look to the Lord, then he will reveal himself to us. And like the three friends in the in the fire, you know, your ropes get burnt off, you forget about the things of the world, and you become free to really worship the Lord, spirit and truth. So, Father, I thank you for what we've read today. It's just amazing. I just pray that you'll give us a revelation of who you are, not as a man, but as God. Lord, we understand that you are a faithful high priest, that you sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, that you've been tested and tempted by Satan and uh, tested by the Father, tempted by Satan, and you've come through victoriously. But you understand what it's like because you had to rely on the power of the Spirit. You just had your human nature there. You weren't using your divine nature. You put yourself in our shoes. So thank you for being our faithful high priest. But Lord, help us also to see you as being God, as being all-powerful, as being omnipotent, as being the ever-present one, the all-knowing one, the one who is in control, the glorious one, the glorious king. So help us to understand more of who you are and help us to rest in that, Lord. So when things happen, we look at you and say, well, my Jesus is so much more powerful than anything that can happen to me down here. I'm just going to be like a baby sleeping in his mother's arms, no matter what the circumstances are. So I just pray these things that you'll give us that confidence in you, in your ability and your power to control things and to rescue us from those bad situations. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.